Section four of a failure of initiative. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Dore. A failure of initiative. Final report of the Select Bipartisan Committee to investigate the preparation for and response to Hurricane Katrina by the United States House of Representatives. Investigation Overview, Part 3 Hurricane Katrina, the Federal Government's Use of Contractors to Prepare and Respond November 2, 2005 Select Committee Hearing Local, state, and federal governments rely heavily on contractor support to prepare for and respond to disasters. This hearing examined the contracts in place prior to Katrina's landfall and procurement planning efforts that took place in anticipation of a large-scale catastrophic event. We also reviewed the rationale and process for awarding disaster relief and recovery contracts in the immediate aftermath of Katrina. The Select Committee asked about the internal controls in place to ensure that federal acquisition laws were followed, the terms and performance of Katrina relief contracts, and the ways in which the management and oversight of disaster-related contracting can be strengthened. A great deal of taxpayer money went out the door to private firms to help prepare for and respond to Katrina. Part of our job was to ask whether it's been money well spent, and part of that inquiry was asking what contracts should have been in place before the storm arrived, based on what everyone knew, or should have known, would be needed. Was the contracting system up to the task? Were we able to get what we needed, when and where we needed it? By any measure, this was an enormous storm, described as one of biblical proportions. In the face of the massive destruction caused by Katrina, acquisition personnel acted to meet pressing humanitarian needs, contacting firms in an effort to provide immediate relief to survivors and to protect life and property and thankfully many firms responded. It is true that several companies were called into action on a sole source basis under acquisition provisions that allow the government to acquire urgently needed goods and services in emergency situations. It's also true that contrary to many media reports, some of the immediate response efforts were provided through existing contracts that had been previously awarded through full and open competition. Nevertheless, concerns were raised with respect to how FEMA awarded contracts in Katrina's immediate aftermath and regarding what contract vehicles were in place before landfall. These were legitimate concerns that affect not only our findings relative to the preparation for and response to Katrina, but also how well prepared will be the next time, and how willing contractors will be to step up to the plate the next time they're called. The indirect result of inefficient contracting and misdirected, even baseless charges against contractors could be a government left with more than it can manage in-house. In the weeks following Katrina, more than 80% of the $1.5 billion in initial contracts awarded by FEMA were awarded on a sole source basis or pursuant to limited competition. Many of the contracts awarded were incomplete and included open-ended or vague terms. In addition, numerous news reports questioned the terms of disaster relief agreements made in haste. Under the Stafford Act, prime contractors 
are to give preference to local subcontractors, but reports indicated that not enough local businesses were being hired. Questions were also raised about the Corps of Engineers' use of a limited competition to award contracts for debris removal and cleanup. Undoubtedly, FEMA before Katrina suffered from something Congress has grappled with government-wide for many years, a lack of sufficiently trained procurement professionals. Prior to Hurricane Katrina, the DHS Office of Inspector General, IG, had repeatedly cited the lack of consistent contract management for large, complex, high-cost procurement programs. DHS procurement continues to be decentralized and lacking a uniform approach. DHS has seven legacy procurement offices that continue to serve DHS components, including FEMA. Notably, FEMA was not reporting or tracking procurements undertaken by disaster field offices, and the procurement office remains to this day understaffed given the volume and dollar value of its work. The chief procurement officer, CPO, had established an eighth office called the Office of Procurement Operations to meet the procurement needs of the rest of DHS. After Katrina, however, the CPO reassigned its staff to assist FEMA's procurement office. At this hearing, we learned errors were made in the contracting process before and after Katrina. The contract oversight process is not always pretty, and decisions made under life-and-death pressure are not always as lucid as those made under less complicated conditions. But there are lessons to be learned about efficient and effective contracting, even from this hopefully once-in-a-lifetime event. That there were and will be disagreements with contractors over pricing and payment schedules should come as no surprise to anyone familiar with the administration of complex contracts in difficult circumstances. The good news is, DHS has begun establishing a rigorous oversight process for each and every federal contract related to Katrina. Now the process needs to be fully implemented. Shortly after the emergency needs arose, DHS's chief procurement officer asked the DHS Inspector General's office to begin overseeing the acquisition process. The DHS IG assigned 60 auditors, investigators, and inspectors and planned to hire 30 additional oversight personnel. The staff is reviewing the award and administration of all major contracts, including those awarded in the initial efforts and will monitor all contracting activities as the government develops its requirements and as the selection and award process continues to unfold. To further ensure that any payments made to contractors are proper and reasonable, FEMA engaged the Defense Contract Audit Agency to help monitor and oversee any payments made and pledge not to pay on any vouchers until each one is audited and cleared. The Select Committee has no patience with waste, fraud, or abuse. We expect that any such instances that are proven will result in harsh punishment for the perpetrators. We also expect that as the conditions on the ground have improved, the next generation of contracts have been and will be awarded and administered in accordance with standard acquisition procedures. Emergency procedures are for emergencies only. FEMA said it continues to revisit non-competitive arrangements made immediately after the storm. Hurricane Katrina, Preparedness and Response by the State of Alabama, 
november ninth two thousand five select committee hearing hurricane katrina preparedness and response by the state of mississippi december seventh two thousand five select committee hearing hurricane katrina preparation and response by the state of louisiana december fourteenth two thousand five select committee hearing the three state-focused hearings we held were arguably the most important in terms of fact-gathering after all we understood that in the event of an emergency state and local government officials bear primary responsibilities under both the national response plan and their own laws and directives throughout federal state and local planning documents the general principle is for all incidents to be handled at the lowest possible organizational and jurisdictional level police fire public health and medical emergency management and other personnel are responsible for incident management at the local level for federally declared emergencies or major disasters dhs provides operational and or resource coordination for federal support to on-scene incident command structures our goal was to better understand the responsibilities and actions of state and local officials before during and after hurricane katrina made landfall we explored state laws policies procedures and how state and local officials interfaced with dhs and fema when they confronted katrina and how dhs interfaced with them the national response plan and the national incident management system were crafted to provide the framework and template respectively for the federal government to work with state and local authorities to prepare for and respond to crises in turn states localities tribal governments and non-governmental organizations are asked to align their plans and procedures with federal guidelines and procedures did this coordinated alignment occur by the time of these hearings we knew in large part it had not we sought to understand from a state and local perspective why hurricane katrina voices from inside the storm december sixth two thousand five select committee hearing in mid-november representative cynthia mckinney asked select committee chairman tom davis to focus a hearing on the african-american voice related to hurricane katrina with that request in mind and having already planned a hearing featuring testimony from storm victims the select committee sought to better understand the experiences of gulf coast residents including those forced to evacuate during the catastrophe only by hearing from those most directly affected by katrina could we determine where how and why the government response at all levels was so terribly inadequate there was little question that katrina had sparked renewed debate about race class and institutional approaches toward vulnerable population groups in the united states in the aftermath of the storm a wide array of media reports public statements and polls underscored this reality in his september fifteenth speech to the nation president bush touched on the issue as all of us saw on television there is also some deep persistent poverty in this region as well and that poverty has roots in a history of racial discrimination which cut off generations from the opportunity of america the president said since then the debate had become increasingly heated in media interviews jesse jackson compared new orleans shelters to the hold of a slave ship 
and Louis Farrakhan suggested New Orleans levees were intentionally blown up to destroy primarily African-American neighborhoods. While not all the commentary has necessarily been constructive, substantiated, or fair, the Select Committee believed the issue warranted further discussion, especially within the context of understanding the experiences of those caught inside the storm and in hopes of making sure the government response is more effective the next time. We knew from government emails and other documents that officials were almost immediately sensitive to public perceptions of race as a factor in the inadequate response. An aide to Louisiana Governor Blanco cautioned colleagues about how to respond to a request from Representative Maxine Waters, an African-American, for security escorts in New Orleans shortly after the storm. Please handle this very carefully, aide Johnny Anderson wrote in an email. We are getting enough bad national press on race relations. Emails from aides to former FEMA director Michael Brown reflected similar concerns about public relations and racial politics. And Alabama officials discussed similar sensitivities about a proposal to conduct background checks on out-of-state evacuees being housed in state parks. A CNN Gallup poll from September 8th to 11th reported 60% of African Americans but only 12% of whites believed race was a factor in the slow response to Katrina. Another poll by the Pew Research Center found that 7 in 10 blacks believed the disaster showed that racial inequality remains a major problem in America. A majority of whites disagreed. A November survey of 46 Katrina evacuees published by the Natural Hazards Center at the University of Colorado Boulder concluded that issues of race and class were central to evacuation experiences. For many, the evacuation process was complicated by age, mental or physical disability, the need to care for dependents, or material possessions they were trying to take with them. The Washington Post, the Kaiser Family Foundation, and Harvard University also conducted face-to-face -face interviews with 680 randomly selected adult evacuees residing in Houston. When asked, has your experience made you feel like the government cares about people like you, or has it made you feel like the government doesn't care? 61% reported they felt the government doesn't care. Additionally, the evacuees suggested an intersection between race and class. 68% of respondents thought the federal government would have responded more quickly if more people trapped in the floodwaters were wealthier and white rather than poorer and black. At an early November forum at Emerson College, Louise Elisa, a former regional director for the Federal Emergency Management Agency under President Clinton, reportedly suggested that race had to be a factor in the inadequate response. I am telling you as a professional that you could not have had a mistake of this nature if something else was not afoot, the Boston Globe quoted Elisa. Whether or not one believed racist charges were well-founded, and clearly a majority of our members did not, the select committee agreed it should recognize and discuss the socioeconomic and racial backdrop against which Katrina unfolded. As the Brookings Institution reported in October, New Orleans, which once had economically and demographically diverse neighborhoods, had grown extremely segregated by both race and income by the time of the storm. 
As a result, Brookings concluded, blacks and whites were living in quite literally different worlds before the storm hit. At the very least, the select committee determined it should further explore at this hearing how socioeconomic factors contributed to the experiences of those directly affected by the storm. The UC Boulder survey found that almost all interviewees described the evacuation process as disorderly and disorganized, with minimal communication about where evacuees were heading and when the next transportation would arrive. This created a state of uncertainty and insecurity. Predominantly working-class African Americans did not evacuate because they did not have the financial resources to do so. The Select Committee sought to learn more about whether government messages to Gulf Coast residents regarding the dangers of the coming hurricane could have been presented in a more effective manner, a question which also carried racial and socioeconomic implications. If you don't hear the message from someone you trust, you tend to be skeptical, Margaret Sims, vice president of the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, told Public Relations Strategist magazine. If you get conflicting information from people you're not sure of, then inaction may be, from your perspective, the most prudent form of action. The same magazine article noted that disaster response may have been hampered by not taking the circumstances of area residents fully into account. The people creating the verbal or image measures don't take into account access or physical barriers to opportunities in certain communities, said Linda Alduri, director of the Center for Risk Communication Research at the University of Maryland. With Katrina, people knew the importance of storm warnings and the need to evacuate, but didn't have the physical access to do so. In other words, the select committee agreed it should examine to what extent response inadequacies stemmed from the messengers and the message. We wanted to further explore the possibility that different people may hear different things when their elected officials are telling them to evacuate. End of section 4